0: Welcome to the Macbeth Monologues. In this monologue, we'll be investigating the concept of fate within the play and how it influences events. Have you ever had that feeling that something was just meant to be? That the world was working with you so that you could achieve what you wanted? Or, conversely, have you ever felt that the odds were against you and that you were meant to fail? These thoughts and feelings all relate to the notion of fate. Fate is seen to be the idea that our life has already been mapped out for us by a higher power, that we experience events that are continually out of our control and that we can't alter as they have been predetermined. Belief in fate can lead to thoughts such as, I was meant to bump into that person on the way to the shops. Or, It was written in the stars that those exam questions came up and I passed with flying colours. Well, actually, probably not. An exam board came to a collective decision and you revised really effectively. But anyway, let's not get into whether fate is a water type concept right now. We're here to talk about how Macbeth grapples with the idea of fate and how it leads to his coronation and also his downfall. The key question we need to ask ourselves is this. Is what happened to Macbeth predetermined? Or does he exercise free will and make his own choices? From the very moment that the Weird Sisters meet Macbeth and the Third Witch utters the fateful greeting All hail Macbeth that shall be king hereafter, both Macbeth and the audience are forced to confront the idea of fate. Will our protagonist become king no matter what? Or is a little help and action required to move things along? That is a consideration that he himself is transfixed by almost immediately. He asserts that to be king stands not within the prospect of belief, demonstrating that he does not believe that he can realistically become king, as monarchs are traditionally succeeded by their offspring. So unless Duncan names him as his successor, then this ascension to the throne is pretty much impossible. Unless, of course, Duncan is removed from the situation altogether. And this is what Macbeth quite quickly starts to consider, although he attempts to dismiss it, knowing the seriousness of the crime he is contemplating. Indeed, he starts to think, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. I mean this metaphorically, of course. He doesn't actually start singing the song. Instead, he states that, if chance will have me king, why, chance may crown me, without my stir. Showing that he thinks it may be possible for him to be king, after all, without him taking any action. After all, chance our fate may determine it. However, this go-with-the-flow attitude deserts him somewhat when Duncan names his son, Malcolm, as next in line to the throne. It throws a bit of a spanner in the works for our supposed hero. This gnawing doubt that what he wants to happen will now not transpire, coupled with his wife's overt longing for power, leads to the decision to take action and make the prophecy happen on his own terms. Interestingly, Banquo does not have the same dilemma about whether to act on what the witches have advised him. He himself is never meant to become king, only his descendants are, And so there is very little that Banquo can do to get this prophecy started, whereas Macbeth can quite clearly take his own action. Now let's talk about Lady Macbeth, who is very keen that Macbeth gives his prophesied regal fate a nudge along. Upon receiving Macbeth's letter in Act 1, Scene 5, she is immediately taken with the idea of becoming Queen of Scotland to Macbeth's king. In fact, she accepts the witch's words immediately. She expresses certainty that her husband will be king, asserting to herself... Thou shalt be what thou art promised, demonstrating that she is embracing the fate prophesies quite readily. Yet there is one problem in her eyes, her husband's character. She muses that her husband's personality is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. She accepts that he will be king, but that simply isn't enough. She wants it now, and the nearest way is murder, thus showing that she wants to manipulate his fate and bend circumstances to her own will. When a messenger arrives stating that Duncan will descend on their castle, she feels as if events are aligning themselves so that her malevolent schemes will succeed. In short, she feels like fate is on her side. She even refers to Duncan's arrival as his fatal entrance, demonstrating her confidence in the scheme. Now to simply persuade her husband. So this isn't quite as easy as she imagined. Macbeth, unlike her seemingly, has a conscience at least for now, and realises the reality of regicide, put quite simply, the murder of a royal ruler. Despite Lady Macbeth's words of encouragement, he fears the consequences of killing Duncan, even with the incentive of a crown for his own head, showing that he is still willing to let fate take its time. This decision to proceed no further forces Lady Macbeth to take extreme action. She undermines his masculinity, insults his bravery, and his character, even comparing him unfavourably to herself in his courage. It is after this barrage of insults and extreme manipulation from his wife that his resolve fails and he decides to take his fate into his own hands in the form of a dagger. Some might say that this vision of a dagger in act two, scene one in his famous, is this a dagger I see before me soliloquy is a cue from above that he is doing the right thing by leading him onwards to Duncan's chamber. Yet this ultimately is just a vision he doesn't need to act upon it. Indeed the moment that he takes a physical dagger into his hand and commits the murder is an example of him exercising his own free will and choosing to do something himself. Ultimately, he is responsible for his own actions in this scene. The witches may have told him that he would be king, but they certainly didn't tell him to murder Duncan. After this barbaric act, there is just a simple process of covering up their involvement in the death of the king and pointing the finger at Malcolm and Bain. Macbeth and Lady Macbeth do this with relative ease, and before we know it, our morally questionable protagonist is named successor and whisks himself away to schoon to be crowned. And yes, I did Google how to pronounce that Scottish town. And there we have it, fate achieved. He is king, as promised, and the witch's words ring true, even if he did have to get his hands dirty to ensure it happened. Now here is where Macbeth should find himself happy, right? His ambition is achieved, and he is now the most powerful man in Scotland, having seemingly got away with murder. Yet this isn't enough for Macbeth. He is now preoccupied with maintaining his power and securing his legacy. and Unfortunately, the prophecy the witch has made about Banquo don't quite fit in with his plans, and he muses on the fact that his fears in Banquo stick deep. So, what to do? He decides to construct a plan to cheat fate. If Banquo and Fleance simply ceased to exist, then that family line would come to an end and there would be no possibility of the Crown leaving Macbeth, or any of his offspring, to go to Banquo's descendants. Murderers are therefore quickly dispatched to remove these potential problems, although we know that this doesn't quite work out with Fleance managing to escape. Interestingly, Macbeth's decision to interfere with Bate in this way shows a marked contrast to his earlier actions previously he was seen to embrace the idea of fate as it revealed future prosperity for himself however now when the prophecies are quite to his liking and feature someone else being championed as having power in the future he tries to control fate and stop certain things from happening he is threatened by the fateful words of the witches now and arrogantly assumes that he is strong enough and intelligent enough to bend events to his will Are the escape of Fleance and the appearance of Banquo's ghost at the feast two signs that he will not be able to do this? Macbeth is certainly perturbed and looks to seek further information about his fate from the witches, announcing that he will, tomorrow, to the Weird Sisters. Whilst this is happening, Hecate has been reprimanding the witches for getting involved with Macbeth, believing him to be unworthy, as of course he is. Hecate is disgusted with Macbeth's arrogance in trying to cheat fate and sets out cruelly to destroy him. Knowing that Macbeth will visit the Weird Sisters again, she sets up a plot to trick him. She will aid the witches in conjuring ambiguous illusions that will lure Macbeth into a false sense of security about his position. She asserts that he will spurn fate after the visit and believe himself to be greater than the supernatural and the process of fate. This, of course, does happen. The three apparitions which tell him in order to beware Macduff that none of woman born shall harm Macbeth and deliver the final message that Macbeth shall never vanquish be until Great Burnham Wood to High Dunsinane Hill shall come against him, all convince him of his own invincibility, as these claims either seem implausible or ones that can be dealt with. Yet the images subtly show him that he will be defeated. He is fated to be defeated. The image that accompanies the warning, Beware Macduff, is an armoured head which foreshadows how Macbeth will be decapitated by Macduff. But Macbeth doesn't register this. He thinks the witches are helping him. He simply resolves to kill Macduff, attempting to control fate again by removing the problem, and when he finds out that Macduff has fled to England, takes steps to murder his family first. At this stage, Macbeth is feeling in control of events, and more than that, arrogantly superior over all others, believing himself to be indestructible. As forces mount against him, he pays them no heed, as wide as he needs to care? Nothing will defeat him, right? Well, When we, the audience, see Malcolm instructing his army to cut down the trees of Burnham Wood, we see that the third apparition has misled Macbeth somewhat. The unthinkable is happening and the wood is moving. The stage is set for Macbeth's defeat, not that he knows it. Still believing himself to be master of fate, he arrogantly dismisses news of his enemy's approach, asserting, bring me no more reports, let them fly all. His misunderstanding of the witch's message about his own fate leads him to believe that he is protected against anything. Even when he is told that the wood appears to be moving, he calls the messenger a liar and a slave. This news is a blow to him, but he still feels assured of his ability to vanquish his foes. And he is certainly confident enough to boast to Macduff, when he has reached the castle, that he leads a charmed life which must not yield to one of woman born. His hopes are punctured, though, when Macduff reveals that he was, from his mother's womb, untimely ripped. Game over. Macbeth realises that he's been tricked and that his fate is to be defeated. Despite this, though, he initially refuses to fight Macduff following this new information, still indoctrinated with the idea that he is to beware him. However, the thought of yielding to Malcolm causes him to reject the witch's warning and embrace his fate to be killed by Macduff. So there we have it. Fate in Macbeth. It's a dangerous thing to believe in. It triggers the Macbeth's huge ambition and a desperation for promised events to come about as quickly as possible, which, in turn, leads to despicable acts being committed. Yet can we say that Macbeth is a victim of fate? No, I don't think so. He is the victim of ambition. Yes, the Weird Sisters acted as puppet masters in him with the idea of the crown. However, he didn't need to take the path he chose. He acted of his own free will, didn't he?